So in Revelation 6, Jesus starts to break the seals, the scroll he took in chapter 5. Each of the first four seals releases a different guy on a different colored horse. Now, this is probably familiar. You've heard of the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is them. Now, if you grew up in the 80s and 90s watching the intellectually stimulating program known as professional wrestling, when you hear four horsemen, you think of these guys. But that's not the four horsemen. That's who you thought of, wasn't it, Michael? I saw it on your face. Michael was going, "Woo!" I saw it. But that's not who it's talking about. It's talking about four different guys who bring different issues on the earth as a part of the judgment of God. There are some people who have given images of what they look like. This is one artist's rendition of what the four horsemen will look like as they come out of the scrolls. Is another one. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, they bring all manner of hurt and devastation onto the world. And I want us to see who they are, what they do. And at the end, I want us to see they're not just something that's coming. They are something that is here today as well. So open your Bible to Revelation 6 if you have not already. Page 952 if you have a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the whole chapter, but we're really only going to look at the first nine or ten verses. First eight verses. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals... I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come, I looked and behold, a white horse. And the one who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And another, a red horse went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth and that people would kill one another. And a large sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard third living creature say, come. I looked and behold, a black horse and the one who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. Behold, I looked in an ashen horse. And the one who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with a sword and famine and plague and by the wild animals of the earth. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been killed because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? Will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who live on the earth? And a white robe was given to each of them. They were told that they were to rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were to be killed even as they had been was completed also. And I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. The tree, as a fig tree, drops its unripe figs when shaken by the wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, 
the eminent people, the commanders, the wealthy, the strong, every slave and free person hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the side of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? The title of the message this morning is The Four Horsemen. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you, God, for all you've given and done, for the opportunity we have today to gather to study your word, to look at what it means for us today and know, know what's coming. So often we're warned not to be caught asleep, not to be caught unaware about the great day of the wrath of the Lamb that's coming. And yet, Father, so often we live like it's not. We live like we're unaware. We live like we don't know. We live like this life is all there is. And everything is just going to be okay at the end. Truly, that is so very contrary to your word. Today, let your spirit come and take what your word says. Stir us to urgency. Stir us to be like the children of Ishakar who understand the times and know what we must do between this day and the day we read about in the word here. Let us be a people who are prepared. Let us be a people who are dug down deep into Jesus so we aren't deceived. We aren't led astray. We aren't shaken by the difficulties that come. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech to speak your word and your ways for your glory. Use this to challenge us and change us today. We ask in Jesus name. Amen. But you may be seated. So we jump right into seal one. The conqueror comes. Verse one and two. The seal is broken, reveals a guy who comes on a white horse. He has a bow, but no arrows. And he's given a crown and he goes out conquering and to conquer. So who is this guy? What do the details revealed about him mean? Before we understand that, we have to be reminded of what Jesus warned us about in the beginning of the end. The very first warning Jesus gives about the end, that you do not be misled. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will mislead or deceive many people. The very first warning and the most constant warning we receive about the end times is not to be deceived. Not to be misled. Not just by false prophets, but by people who come and claim to be Jesus. The idea of deception and claiming to be Jesus is Everything this guy is about. It is the center. All he is. All he does. And all that is revealed about him. His deception is seen in several ways. He appears to be like Jesus. It says in verse 2. He sits on a white horse. He has a crown. is given to him. He has a weapon. A bow. And he goes out conquering. And to conquer. Now all of these are. Very similar descriptions that we will see about Jesus when we get to Revelation 19. He's sitting on a white horse. He has a crown. 
He has a weapon, but it's a sword. He goes out and he conquers. But despite the similarities, there are some very real differences between this guy in Revelation 6 and Jesus in Revelation 19. This guy has a crown, but Jesus, it tells us, wears many crowns. This guy is given a crown, but Jesus just has crowns. No one gives them to him, for he is the Lamb, the the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. This guy is given a crown, but Jesus, Revelation 2.10 tells us, is the giver of crowns. This guy carries a bow, but Jesus has a sword. This guy is one of four, but Jesus is the one and only. Now, the similarities between this guy and Jesus are intentional on this guy's part because he wants to deceive people into thinking he is Jesus. But he's not. He is not the Christ. But he is what we've often heard to referred as the anti Christ. He tries to deceive people through his white horse. There are at least two interpretations of the symbolism of the white horse. One is that the the horse, the white horse, symbolizes purity or goodness of the rider. So he's pretending to be a good guy when he really isn't. The other idea associated with the white horse is that he is heroic. He's going to sweep in and save the day. Now, our culture, we're familiar with this idea. Who is it in the old westerns that rides in and saves the day? Right? It's the guy on the white horse. It's exactly who this guy wants the world to think he is. But the question comes, how can a bad guy convince the world he's a good guy? How can the one who comes to bring destruction and damnation convince the world he comes to bring salvation to the masses? He does this by promising and delivering to the world what it wants more than anything else. He brings peace. We're told he has a bow. And he is given crowns and he goes out and he conquers. Now, while the bow is a weapon of war, it needs something to be an effective weapon of war. It needs arrows. Apart from arrows, it can be used to bludgeon someone, to jab someone, but it cannot be used to its full potential. A bow without arrows is like a rifle Without bullets. Sure, it can be a weapon, but not all it's meant to be. My understanding, my interpretation of the bow without the arrows is that he goes forth to conquer, but his conquering is done without bloodshed. He doesn't conquer through war, as has often been the case in history. He conquers through peace. He comes on the scene in a time of great strife in the world and he promises he has the ability to bring peace to the world. And when he does, the people of the earth and the leaders of the earth make him their leader, make him their king, thus the ruler of the world. You might even say in doing this, They give him a crown he did not previously have. Now this, his bringing peace is a fulfillment to Old Testament. The book of Daniel, we're told about one 
who will come and confirm a covenant with many for a week. In the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. On the wing of the abominations will come the one who makes desolation till a complete destruction. One that is decreed gushes forth on the one who makes desolate. We don't have time to really get into that. I just want you to see the covenant with many. He makes a covenant with many. Now, Daniel, of course, was a Jew. Israel is a key player in the end times because they are so often the center of things. But the covenant he makes isn't just with Israel and someone else. It's with many. It is a covenant, a peace that goes beyond Israel, beyond the Middle East. It is a major world peace pact. And every nation signs off on it. Every nation agrees to it. So this is how the tribulation period begins. Not with war. It begins with the world at peace. He brings peace, but he also brings prosperity. Now, while it's not mentioned specifically here, prosperity is a huge part of the guy's platform as well. The destruction of his kingdom is described in Revelation 18, 9 through 19. It's described as the fall of Babylon. When Babylon falls, the people of the earth weep over the destruction largely because of the prosperity this kingdom, really the the king of the kingdom, gave to them. There's one verse that is the best overall description of the kingdom. The kings of the earth who committed acts of sexual immorality and lived luxuriously with her, Babylon, the kingdom, will weep and mourn when they see the smoke of her burning. The two key phrases about the life the Antichrist provides, committed acts of sexual immorality, and lived luxuriously. Sexual immorality likely refers to all kinds of physical pleasure, while lived luxuriously refers to signifies great wealth. The rest of the chapter elaborates on this. So what the guy does when he comes is he offers, he promises, and he delivers a life of peace, a life of wealth, and a life of pleasure. So imagine for a second, someone comes upon the scene in our day, and they promise they can bring an end to fighting everywhere from Minneapolis to the Middle East, from Sudan to Syria, from everywhere in between. But not just peace for nations at war, but peace in the cities. He says he has a plan. And if his plan is followed, it will not only end the wars between the nations, it will end violent crime in the cities. But this isn't some sort of empty campaign promise. He legitimately delivers upon this. He convinces all the nations of the world to sign a peace treaty. They all stop warring against one another. Because of his reforms, violence in the streets stop. Violent crime all but disappears. But not only does he do this, he promises and delivers a chicken in every pot, so to speak. He promises you'll have more wealth than you've ever had before. And with this wealth will come more pleasure, more living luxuriously than you've ever experienced before. All of your wildest dreams will come true. 
But again, this is not an empty campaign promise. He delivers. The economy thrives. Our bank accounts go up. Our 401ks explode. And we're able to almost live a life of just ease and pleasure because of what this guy brings into our lives. What would the people of the earth do for such a guy? What would you or I do in response to such a person? Well, when this seal is broken and this guy comes out, the people of the earth follow the guy, but they don't merely follow the guy. They begin to worship him as God, as the one true God all religions have always spoken about. And as we see later in the book of Revelation, this was always the point. He wants to be worshipped as God. Reminds me of something I've seen on social media. I don't know where it comes from, but it's an accurate quote. The devil doesn't come dressed in a red cape with pointy horns. He comes as everything you've always wanted. Seal one, the conqueror. Seal two, war and chaos. He breaks the second seal. A red horse comes out and it's granted to him to take peace from the earth. The people would kill one another. A large sword was given to him. Just as the previous guy is a false Christ, he brings a false peace. Maybe not a false peace, but not the peace he promises, not the lasting peace he said it would be. If you look here, notice makes a covenant for a week and the week symbolic. I don't have time to get into that, but he puts a stop to it partway through the middle of the week. The peace he promises, it's not lasting like he says it will. Part of the way through this peace, he he breaks his covenant and causes war to break out. But what he's doing is this seal is being broken. The treaties are broken. War and chaos erupt. This seal reveals a guy on a red horse who's given the power, explicitly given the power to take peace from the earth and cause people to kill one another. Given a large sword, a a weapon of war to cause this. This lines up with what Jesus said in Matthew 24 about wars and rumors of wars and nations rising against nations. So, so here's what happens. This guy comes on the scene and he promises peace and prosperity and luxury. And then he delivers and everybody goes for it. Everybody begins to follow him. But for a while that goes well, but then suddenly something happens. Everything changes. Nations who have been at peace suddenly go to war with one another. But not just nations against nations. War breaks out all over the world. It breaks out in the cities. The violence in the cities resumes. And people kill people. And there is just a, a lack of, not, not peace like, I'm at peace. But there is just strife and war and violence and murder everywhere in every city, in every nation, in every continent on the world. The vanished crime rate returns with a vengeance. And and we live now in a time of violence and a time of war. But what we're seeing here will be unlike anything we have ever experienced. 
It will be far beyond anything that this world has ever seen up until then. The second seal brings war and chaos. And then Jesus breaks the third seal, which brings famine, poverty, and economic collapse. Third seal reveals a guy on a black horse with a pair of scales used to weigh out food. And what we're seeing is famine-like conditions on the earth, which makes sense because the world is at war. When a, a nation is filled with war and violence, crops fail, manufacturing ceases, industry is destroyed. Think about Germany. Pictures you've seen of Germany after World War II. Think of pictures you've seen of the American South after the Civil War. In both instances, there was poverty and famine-like conditions because the war that raged there had destroyed everything they had. Now imagine those sorts of scenes not confined to a place here and there, not someplace far off CNN has coverage, but it's right outside those doors. It is right there. It is everywhere. It is in every city, in every nation, in every state in the world. And again, this is what Jesus said would happen in Matthew 24 and 7. And when there is this sort of poverty and famine and economic collapse, things begin to happen. For instance, food is rationed. Since there's not a lot of food, you have to be careful to ensure there's enough to go around. So someone has to control the food and only allow people to get a certain amount at a certain time. We see this here as the third rider has a pair of scales. The scales are to weigh the food to make sure you only get a certain amount. And he says that a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, I don't know much about wheat and barley and what the big difference between them is. But according to one sermon I heard, the difference is in the nutritional value. Barley is inferior to wheat in nutritional value. One quart of wheat was enough to feed one person for a day. Three quarts of barley was enough to feed a smallish family for a day. So in this time when the third seal is broken, the choices facing every person is buy enough quality food for one person for a day or buy lower quality food to feed a small family for a day. Food is rationed. But food is not only rationed, food is expensive. A, a quart for a denarius, three quarts for a denarius. Now, under normal circumstances, William Barclay says uh, a denarius would buy anywhere from eight to 16 quarts of wheat and up to four times as much barley. A, a denarius was basically a day's wage for the average worker in this time. So, so again, imagine the situation. You work all day. And what you make for the day, you're given your daily wage. And that wage is going to give you enough to buy enough quality food for you or lower quality food for your small family. But that's it. There's no more money. Right? I mean, you have spent it. You're, it's not 
I can buy this food and then I'll have to get the iPhone 3 instead of the iPhone 12S. No, no. No, there's not that. No, it's I can I can buy food or I can pay rent, but I don't have enough today to do both. Today I'm given enough money for this day's food. There are no full cabinets. There's no buying clothes. There, there is no nothing extra. No stockpiles, no leftovers, no ordering pizza. There's just enough for one day. This is worse than depression era poverty. So food is rationed. Food is expensive. But government control is expanded. Right? He says, but don't damage the oil and the wine. And I read two ideas about damaging the oil and the wine. One is God set limits on the destruction of the famine to ensure oil and wine would not be hurt. The other is that while poverty affected the masses, there would be a privileged few who would continue to prosper. Their prosperity would be seen in the fact they could have and they basically controlled luxuries like oil and wine. Basically, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Now, I tend to think the latter, and I'll tell you why. Anywhere you find suffering, you find war, chaos, famine, poverty, economic collapse, you find somebody somebody profiteering off of that. You always find someone is bettering their lives off the backs of the misery of another. And it doesn't matter where you go. You go to Syria and the war and the misery there. Someone in or around that area is getting rich off the destruction of that city, of that country and the misery of those people. You even go in America and you look where cities are being burned. Things are being broken. Someone, while businesses and homes are destroyed and lives are ruined, someone is prospering and buying million dollar homes. That's the reality of the world we live in. And the Antichrist, well, he's just the kind of person who would do this. Because when food has to be rationed and food has to be controlled, who has the control? Government does, right? Isn't that what the government will do? They'll take control. They'll determine how much the people get. They'll determine what happens. But the government, their people, don't they get the oil and the wine? The best of the best? Of course. That's exactly what they do. The one world leader sets the control. He controls. His control over the world is expanded during this time. Tightens up his control. And and we see this. There's a biblical example of this. Think about the story of Joseph from Genesis. How did Joseph rise to prominence? Pharaoh had a dream. He couldn't interpret. And the dream was there would be seven prosperous years, followed by seven years of famine so bad, the seven prosperous years would not be remembered. So what did Joseph tell Pharaoh to do? Collect a tax on the people of what they gather. Keep it during the far, the prosperous years to give during the famine years. So Pharaoh institutes this tax, gathers all of this food, all of this stuff, and he has it. Then as the famine goes on, there's no food for the people. So they go to Pharaoh 
and they buy. And they use all of their money to buy the food. And then the next year, they don't have any money. So they sell their land to Pharaoh in order to get food. Now keep in mind, the food they're buying is food they planted and they harvested that Pharaoh took. So they sell all their lands to Pharaoh so they don't starve. And then the the next year goes by and they have no money and they have no land. So what do they have to offer to Pharaoh in an effort to get food? They sell themselves into slavery to the government in order for to get food that they needed. Pharaoh controlled the food and thus he controlled the economy and thus he controlled the people. When we get to Revelation 13, verses 14 through 18, we'll see the beast, as he's called there, convince the world to take his mark upon their bodies in order to be able to buy or sell. Then in Revelation 14, 9 through 11, we're told anyone who takes this mark or everyone who takes this mark will drink the cup of the wrath of God and his wrath will be poured out upon them in full strength. Because they will be cast in the lake of fire where the smoke of their torments will rise forever and ever. Now the question arises. Why would anyone take a mark that guaranteed their eternal damnation? Two reasons. First, they are deceived. We've already discussed and established this guy is a deceiver. We'll talk more about this in coming weeks. Second is because this guy controls the economy. And apart from taking this mark, there is no buying or selling. There's no jobs. You can't work without taking the mark. You can't buy without taking the mark. If by chance you harvest something off out in the middle of nowhere that nobody sees you doing and you bring it in to sell, nobody will buy it from you without taking the mark. So the choices in this day will be take the mark and have food to eat, a job to go to and a house to live in or lose all of that. Potentially watch your family and yourself Starve to death because no one will give you anything to eat. Like Pharaoh before him, the Antichrist will control the food and thus he will control the economy. and Thus he will control the people. And because people will sell their souls for stuff, they will take his mark. And then the fourth rider is released. Death through war, famine, plagues, and beasts of the field. The natural result of war, violence, poverty, and famine is death. The fourth seal reveals a man in verse 8 on an ashen, is what my Bible says, an ashen horse. Interesting tidbit about the ashen horse. So the Greek word translated as ashen could literally be translated as green. In fact, my Bible has a note that says it could be translated as sickly, pale green. And I'm pretty sure the idea behind a sickly, pale green horse 
is that the sickly pale green horse is meant to look like it's made of rotting meat. I think the picture is death comes riding on a dead looking horse. And death was given power. Authority was given them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. Some would die just because of the war and the chaos. Some would die because of the famine and the poverty. And then some would die because plagues and viruses and diseases would arise and kill them. Others would die because the wild beasts of the field who also are starving and without will run wild and kill the people. And again, this very fits very well with Matthew 24-7, what Jesus said. Can you imagine... An, can you imagine a worldwide outbreak of diseases and viruses, animal attacks, violence in the street, leading to millions of deaths? If so, it's something along these lines. Imagine the devastation of the death of one-fourth of the human population on earth. By human population standards today, that would mean over a billion people die when the fourth seal is broken. Given the way they die, it doesn't appear they all die at once. It's not like the seal breaks, one fourth of the planet drops dead. It's over a period of time. They're killed by war, they're killed by the chaos in the streets, they're killed by the famine. They're killed by the plagues. They're killed by the beasts. Uh, imagine a world where over a period of weeks and months and years, one billion people die miserably. Not peacefully drift off to sleep and wake up in eternity. But every day the news is bringing information about packs of dogs ripping kids apart in the street. Bears running and catching people and dragging them apart. Towns being burned down and people being murdered. War spreading over into different countries. Imagine the fear, the hopelessness, the chaos, the misery of this time. But as Jesus said, the end is not yet. And before we close... There's one last truth I want to point out. The four horsemen and what they bring aren't like completely sealed up right now until the day Jesus breaks the seals. They are in many ways on the earth right now. And every day we see what they bring just in a restrained sort of way. Look at what we're told in God's word. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. The first seal releases the Antichrist upon the earth. He comes to deceive. And yet, the spirit of the Antichrist is already on the earth, moving throughout the world. We see the impact of the, the spirit of the Antichrist as he inspires opposition to Jesus. This opposition comes in a variety of ways. The opposition to Jesus comes in teaching that would corrupt the nature of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. The opposition comes 
in the strong hatred of Jesus we might see in our culture. The strong, uh, the, the opposition comes in the form of, si- of trying to silence the preaching of the gospel. It comes in the form of denying the necessity of Jesus for salvation. It comes in the form of those who talk a lot about God but never say Jesus. It comes in a multitude of ways we see every day. We see the work of the first rider as people try to find peace through political ideology rather than through Jesus. We see his work as people sell their souls for material prosperity. We see his work as people choose the sinful pleasures of this world over holiness and devotion to Jesus. But the first rider isn't the only one at work in the world today. We see the work of the second rider in our world today as well. We see his work in wars all over the world. We see his work when rioters burn down U.S. cities. We see his work when rioters invade the U.S. Capitol. We see his work through senseless violence on the news. We see his work in a multitude of ways each and every day. We see the work of the third rider as people suffer and starve in world in war ravaged countries. We see his work as people die from preventable diseases because they don't have access to preventable medicines. We see his work as government officials use tragedies to strengthen their control over their populations. We see the work of the fourth rider as new diseases arise and kill people. We see the work of the fourth rider as old diseases continue to kill people. We see his work through gun violence on our streets. We see his work through tragedies resulting in the loss of life. We see his work in every one of the over 14 million abortions performed this year. We see his work through virtually every sort of death we experience in the world. But here's where it gets personal. Because we not only see their work out there. It is entirely possible we see their work in here. We see... Their work in us in a variety of ways. Do you think you'll be saved from God's wrath despite rejecting Jesus? Then the first rider is at work in your life. Do you refuse to share the gospel with people because they're good people and you're sure they'll be all right? The first rider is at work in your life. Do you think the other political party is what's wrong with the country and your political party is the cure? The first rider is at work in your life. Do you think a little more wealth, possessions or stuff will fill the void in your life and give you the peace and satisfaction you desire? The first rider is at work in your life. Do you find anger as your most consistent emotion? The second rider is at work in your life. Do you find yourself yelling in anger at things that do not directly affect your life? The second rider is at work in your life. Do you regularly lash out at others in your anger? The second rider is at work in your life. Do you wish your, for your political party to better maximize the circumstances of life to ensure they remain in power or gain more power? The third rider is at work in your life. Do you think abortion is the innocent procedure rather than the murder of an innocent unborn child? The fourth rider is at work in your life. The four horsemen... Revelation 6, right all throughout our world today, according to Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, they are in some ways restrained. The day will come when Jesus will break the seal and He will remove what restrains them and they will ride upon the earth 
in full force. As I study the six, these first four seals, I can see how all of this would happen. It, it really doesn't seem far-fetched to me for these sort of things to come to pass. It all seems very plausible. But what makes it even more terrifying is that it's not just a plausible and a fearful story. It's a fact. This is going to happen. And it's going to happen in exactly the way John wrote it would happen in Revelation 6. Because it was given to him by Jesus, who is the holy and true witness. The King over kings, the Lord over lords. He will ensure it comes to pass. And as horrible as what we've just seen is with these first four writers, these are not the worst. As Jesus says in Matthew 24, 8, this is just the beginning of sorrows. And so the question before us all, are we ready? Are you ready? Am I ready? Have you prepared yourself for this day? By repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus Christ. Are you dug down deep into Jesus and his word so you won't be deceived by the first writer? Are you dug down deep into Jesus to the point you know there's no hope in the Democrats? And you know there's no hope in the Republicans because there is only hope in Jesus. Are you dug down deep into Jesus And His Word, so when the hard days come, you will be prepared to endure until the end. For those are the only ones who will be saved. Are your loved ones prepared? Are they ready? Have they prepared themselves by repenting of their sins and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ? Have they dug down deep into Jesus and His Word so they won't be deceived by the first rider? Have they dug down deep into Jesus and His Word so the point they know there is no hope in the Democrats? There is no hope in the Republicans. There is only hope in Jesus. Have they dug down deep into Jesus and His Word so when the hard days come, they will be prepared and will remain faithful to the end knowing those who endure to the end are the only ones who will be saved. Are you ready? Am I ready? And if we would say yes, I'll believe you. I have no reason to doubt anyone who would say they are ready. If you and I, if we have readied ourselves, then it's time for us to move on and help ready others. For no matter how ready you and I are, we know people who are not ready. And this is where we must move. If you would say, yes, Lord, I'm ready. Then today in the time of response we have, you determine you will give the rest of your life until the seals are broken to ensure others are ready. And if you're not ready, take this seriously. Make today the day you start getting ready. Perhaps getting ready starts by repenting of your sins and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything has to start from there. There's no help. There's no hope. There's no being ready. Apart from personally repenting of sin, personally believing on Jesus, personally calling upon Him to save you.
So there's work for all of us to do today, whether it's to prepare ourselves or determine we're going to work to prepare others. But let's stand.